Hello and welcome to Vet Chloe on the Road. Insights from real people making positive change for our planet. I am Chloe, a veterinarian who has an interest in wildlife and all things environmental. And this is a show for people who would like to connect, learn, and prioritize caring for our beautiful green and blue world. Come join me as I travel around Australia in my van, Layla. Let's share all things conservation and meet all the inspiring environmental heroes along the way. And on today's episode will be my dear vet friend, Dr. Claire Peterson, who over the weekend I visited at her family farm in Kulungali, 20 minutes outside of Wagga Wagga and a bit over an hour where I'm staying here in Leeton. It is a lot of fun to join Claire in her country girl life where we drove tractors, picked up bales of hay, fed the cows, and generally mucked about along with her golden Kelpie dog, Indy, always wanting to join, as well as having lovely family meals in the kitchen with her mum and dad, and enjoying a wine and cheese evening together down by the river. We talk about her farm life, which is on the weekends, as well as her work life for Animal Health Australia, a not-for-profit public company that facilitates innovative partnerships between governments, major livestock industries and other stakeholders to protect animal health and the sustainability of Australia's livestock industry. I always love learning about what everybody is up to, and this job has taken Claire far and wide, including all over Australia and overseas, such as Nepal. But let's start from the beginning. Listen in. Welcome to the show, Claire. Thanks, Chloe. Thanks for inviting me to be on your show. Yes, in your um, family home here in the kitchen, having a cup of tea. So to start off, Claire, can you tell us a bit about your background? Thanks, Chloe. Um, so I'm a vet, um, as, as you know. Yes. Uh, so I graduated seven years ago. And um, growing up in the country, I always knew that I wanted to be a vet. Yeah. Uh, we have cattle here on the farm, and from a young age, I was with my dad helping, uh, helping the cows, and especially my favourite thing was helping them give birth. Um, yes. So I love calves and loved helping with calvings. Yeah. So when I finished school, I went off to uni in Wagga nearby. Mm-hmm. And when I was at uni, I actually realized that even though I loved agriculture and production animals, I was actually more interested in the time of pursuing um, small animal clinical practice mm-hmm. because I like the medicine and the diagnostics. So did that surprise you that you had an interest in mm. the smaller side of it did, veterinary medicine? Yeah. yeah, because I went in expecting to do cattle and horses mm. and then... Uh, as I experienced that and experienced companion animal practice, I thought that I would like that more. But I was always still interested in, in agriculture and production mm-hmm. um, and the economics um, of, right. of agriculture, but more like um, herd animal health. Yes. So animal livestock on a yep. herd health perspective. And that's a big difference between agricultural and small animal medicine because yes. it's all about the individual at a veterinary clinic. Um, with your cats and dogs, um, and it's more, yeah, what's best for the majority with the big herds. So, and that's how we met, isn't it? So, after your studies, you then went searching for small animal uh, veterinary employment. That is, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So my first job was in Western Sydney, uh, where I was lucky enough to be working with yourself, Woo! which was likewise, um, yeah, yeah. Which it was, was comforting was, to have you there. It was, it was a lot of fun, um, parts of it. Yes. Uh, so I still always say it was a great first job because yes, you know, we saw a lot, we experienced a lot, and I think that clinic we had great support in each other. 
uh, you were never in it alone. So yes. it was definitely, um, definitely learned a lot there and valued my time there. Yeah. And also the long hours we did and the night work we did has definitely made me value uh, the type of work I do now a lot yeah. more. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, the stress levels were high. Um, I found comfort because we did become housemates as well. So mm-hmm. I had you to come home too. And, um, you know, we definitely could relate on our, our work lifestyle mm-hmm. together, which is not for everyone. No. Um, yeah. And not even for everyone for long term. We've kind of mm-hmm. gotten away from that. Yeah. Yeah. So we were very lucky to have that time. I yes. think it was, yeah, it was. It was a good time. Yep, yep, formative. I think it definitely challenged us mm. and uh, it was into deep waters straight away. Mm, yeah. Yes, it was definitely being thrown in the deep end, but that's mm-hmm. definitely the best way to learn. And certainly it's great to set yourself challenges and to have to go through challenging times because you definitely grow more as yep. a person yep. uh, through experiencing it. Yeah. And from there, where did you go? So I did two years in Western Sydney and then I had uh, four months off to travel. I went to Europe and also I worked on the farm. Nice. And then I came back and I started working in Canberra and that was mainly to be closer to the family farm because I realised that spending time on the farm was really important to me and being able to uh, support, help support the farm and and my parents, but also just for me because I enjoy doing it. So Mm. it was also... Uh, a selfish thing as well to position myself so I was closer to the farm. Yes, yes. And tell us a bit about the farm here. Um, we've done a bit of work on it this weekend with the baling and the, you know, your different crops that you grow. What is the the mainstay of your farm here? So this farm, its main enterprise is making hay. Mm-hmm. So we're in the fodder industry. So our primary market is small square bales of loosened hay which mainly goes for horses. Mm-hmm. We also make some teff hay, which is a warm season perennial grass, which is uh, particularly popular amongst horse owners because it is a low sugar hay. So mm-hmm. that's good for horses that are overweight or suffering yeah. metabolic conditions like laminitis. Yep. So those are our main markets. We also do some oat and rye hay, yep. sometimes in round rolls. Yep. We have cattle as well, uh, yeah. so the herd isn't as big as it was when I was at school yep. because these days we uh, do more hay, but mm-hmm. we still uh, have a small amount of breeding cattle, so that's um, a part of the operation as well. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. And here there's a big sort of irrigation system um, for the watering of these paddocks. How does that work? Yes, yeah, so uh, to make hay in this area... Because uh, rainfall is only about 700 millimetres a year and you don't get that every year, Mm. the only way you can be consistently making hay is if you use irrigation. Mm -hmm. So we do uh, have some flood irrigation and a central pivot, uh, which is supplied by bore water, which is um, quite common in this uh, valley. Yep. And there is a river on the property of which you cannot take water from. That's very strict, isn't it? You yes. have to source it from yes. the bore. And that's all tight, um, tightly restricted? That's right, yeah. yes. Yeah. So some properties have an allocation yeah. to pump from the river, but we don't here. We yeah. just use bore water. Um, but it does mean that we can um, 
enjoy the river still uh, yeah. on boats or yes. uh, going for walks. So yeah. it is, um, we still enjoy the river, although it does mean that if the river floods, the farm, parts of the farm do flood. Oh, do they? Right. Yeah, last time I was here a couple of years ago, um, we had a wonderful time on your riverboat. And I remember it was the time to flood the water um, mm. for the different paddocks. We were going out and you were setting your your clock throughout the night to get up yes. and let out certain channels and um yeah it was interesting work yes. um and I guess different seasons there's different jobs to be done on the farm um yeah. and right now we're just collecting the the, the last of the harvest after the summer Is uh that... that's right the last yeah. the last uh the hay harvest yeah. I suppose you could call it yeah. so uh being uh, mid-April now it gets too cold to make hay there's not enough yeah. um warmth in the sun and enough drying hours yes uh, and soon and usually there's more rain as well yeah which you, is uh you can't make hay if it's raining yeah so it's quite technical because it's mm. all about the moisture content of the hay at the time of baling it right um and rolling it up so right mm. now um your dad john um and his mate mark are out baling the hay because it's a good time is it right now yes yeah. so they are baling the teff hay yeah which you can uh, bale without as much moisture so that's okay. why they're out in the day yeah uh, usually if they're baling loosened hay they're out anytime from 10 at night oh. um anytime then right through until maybe 10 o'clock the next morning, morning right. depending on the moisture and the dew yeah um and the humidity the conditions that night yeah so it's a real art isn't it to get it right and you've it you know, is. done many decades, your family, to kind of get it get it right. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely what they call, you know, a, a black art or is, or is it a black science? Ah, uh, uh, um, yeah, so interesting. So definitely um, a lot of yeah. guesswork and, yeah. in it. Yeah, um, it, it, intuition and yes. and past experience. And so this gets, um, you know, big trucks come, loaded on, goes to the market and, and horses in the area eat it or does it go sent... Other markets usually. Um, yeah. some, some of it is lo- nearby, um, yeah. otherwise Sydney or Canberra. Right. Goes to. Yeah, for, you know, real, probably even racehorses. Yes, things. most yeah. likely to racehorses. Yeah, it's good quality. Mm. So I love the farm stuff, as you can tell. Um, we sort of deep dived into that. Um, so after your small animal clinic in Canberra, what did you then do um, professionally? So after three years of small animal clinical practice, I decided I wanted a change. I wanted to do something that was less about the individual animal yeah. and was more around um, agriculture. So uh, being in Canberra at the time, uh, there were opportunities for government work and mm. uh, non-government agencies, which is where I work now. So now I work in emergency preparedness uh, for animal diseases. Yeah, yeah. To me, it always sounds like the, um, I mean, not on the ground, but, you know, like the paramedic, you know, of uh, what could happen, outbreaks. And it's probably that crossover between animals and humans, right? And yeah. how the world works. Um, There's definitely an aspect of that. So, yeah. I mean, our company and my job is really all about preparing uh, for what would happen if uh, animal disease, a significant animal disease breaks out here, right. uh, like foot and mouth disease. So yeah. that's the example of probably the worst situation that could happen if that disease was to enter Australia. Yes. Has it ever entered Australia? In the 1800s. Right. Uh, and yeah. they eradicated it yeah. very quickly. Because I'm only aware of it from when I was at school in England and it had broken out then and it was a big problem <laughs> yes and um, uh 
the experience of what happens in the UK for foot and mouth disease is one of the reasons why people are putting in a lot of effort in Australia to yes. prepare for the disease as well as we can. Yeah. Uh, a lot of lessons were learnt from that outbreak that we yeah. incorporate into the arrangements and plans that mm. we have now. So what's the, what's the name of your role and what does your job involve day in, day out? What do you... So my role is as the manager of the training services. Mm-hmm. So uh, that involves training for roles for government and industry uh, for, that people would fill in an animal response. Mm-hmm. So in my job now, I've had to learn a lot about emergency management. And so that's broader than just for animal diseases. The yeah. same structure, the same incident management system is used whether in Australia, whether the incident is a fire or a flood mm. um, or some other natural disaster. And an animal disease is just one Another of one. the... So do you work alongside people that do fire and flood disaster yes, control? You yes, know, sometimes, yes. What's, yeah. What do they call? What's their job? So they Emergency usually, services? like sometimes they might work for the SES. Usually they just work for government agencies. Yeah. SES, the state emergency state service. Emergency service. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I mean, it's interesting to look at those principles, but then in my job we will look at some of the specifics. Yep. Uh, that are unique to responding to animal diseases. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, luckily for us in Australia, we have a very good biosecurity system. Uh, we have a lot of controls in place to try and prevent diseases entering the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also our geographic location means that we haven't had many major mm-hmm. animal disease responses yet. So yep. we've been very fortunate. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of work is done behind the scenes to try yeah. and keep it that way. And um, this is just a fine detail, but you know when you enter the country, you fill out that waiver and it says do you have any muddy have you been on a farm in the last mm. last week or something like this yes does that that's all part of your job being aware of those questions like being aware of that so my job and being yeah I don't know specifically in that yeah. area but yeah. um, I work with people at times um, for the commonwealth who do work in that area yes okay and so being a manager of all the training you must do a lot of travel I know that you've been um, a big jet setter, not so much this year, um, but you've gone to many of the big capitals of Australia to train other people in this area? Yes, so yeah. uh, while I've been uh, working for my company, I have travelled a lot. Uh, the nature of training and working for a national organisation means you often do need to go and uh, train in, in the locations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Sometimes we have a real mix of audiences. Sometimes yep. we'll have people from um, producers in the local area, yep. uh, as well as people who work for industry bodies and people who work high up in government. Mm. Um, so do you have an example of a project that you've done? Yes. Yeah, so um, one of the more exciting things I've done for work recently was when I travelled to Nepal. Mm. So this was a great program uh, that was funded by... Uh, partly funded by the Commonwealth Department of Agriculture and Water Resources. Mm-hmm. And uh, in this example, I was a participant rather than running the training. Mm, that was probably um, nice for you. It was. <laughs> Sit back a bit. <laughs> I, I do enjoy getting to be a participant. Yes. <laughs> um, and so this is a great program. It's been running for a number of years now where Australian vets and animal health professionals are taken to overseas areas where foot and mouth disease is present. Right. So foot and mouth disease is a disease we're most concerned about in Australia. Mm. And that's because 
uh, it's estimated to cost over 50 billion across 10 years if we were to have an outbreak. Mm. And tell people what that disease is all about. So it's a production disease. Um, it causes um, ulcerations in the mouth and tongue of the animal and severe lameness and mm. milk drop. Yeah. Uh, it's p- particularly a problem because it is very contagious. So it's one of the most contagious viruses of mm. animals. Uh, it's sort of vesicles form, right? And yes. Burst and, yeah. yeah. Vesicles or blisters. Yeah. Uh, and so their animal secretions of infected animals are very contagious and mm. they will spread very rapidly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the morbid- morbidity rate is very high, so the amount of animals that get sick because it is very contagious. Mm. Uh, and also another reason why it spreads so quickly, it has the ability to spread quickly, mm-hmm. is because it is very stable in the environment. So mm. that means that uh, it can be spread from something as minimal as someone with boots walking through an infected mm. area and then walking somewhere else where there's animals. Yeah. Which is why they ask people about, have you had any contact with animals yeah. when you come back from overseas? And yeah. if you say you have, they will often look at your boots and decontaminate them. If, yeah. Um, have a look at the shoes you're wearing. I'm always surprised that we're even able to prevent it with it being so easily transmitted. Because mm. um, has England gotten rid of it? Yes. yes. So, I mean, that's just amazing because I would have thought, but um, obviously um, y- your job is all about preventing, but also in a crisis, how to get rid of it. Um, and yes. you can learn from other countries and what they've done. And Yes, that's right. It's so, comforting to know that it's not the end if uh, there are ways to eradicate it. That's right. Yeah. So a lot of work's put into yeah. making plans and arrangements and testing them. Yes. So my job in training involves that sometimes. Yeah. Uh, so to try and look at how prepared we are and look at how we yep. can do things better. And what was Nepal doing? What were you um, doing there? So in Nepal, we were looking at foot and mouth disease in an area where it's endemic. So that's mm. an area where the disease occurs, uh, unlike Australia, where we would consider it to be exotic. Right. So because we don't have foot and mouth disease here, but it's really well known that the quicker you can detect a disease mm-hmm. and start responding the more likely you are to get it under control and to minimise the huge cost. Mm. So the more people in Australia who have seen the disease and can recognise it, the more prepared we are and hopefully uh, more able to respond quickly and efficiently. Mm -hmm. So the training involved in the classroom, looking at lesions, looking at the signs, the animals or symptoms Mm -hmm. uh, of disease, Yep. And then we went out to areas that had recent foot and mouth disease outbreaks. So yeah. we uh, examined animals and took samples of affected animals. And uh, they did look like the pictures, which mm. was um, slightly reassuring. Yeah. So I, we, uh, we did treat those animals. It is a virus, but we did treat the sort of secondary infection to give yes. them pain relief. Yep. And, How do um, farmers go in that area? It's just part of life. They it still, is just part of life. They still produce. They consider it a just a production disease. Mm. Uh, they do vaccinate at times, but the, but the vaccine uh, isn't ideal because yeah. you have to give it every six months, so they mm-hmm. don't always do that. Mm-hmm. But it does cause big production losses for mm. them yep. uh, because the cows, for them in that area, dairy cattle, milking cattle is their biggest industry. But dairy cattle, even though if they get foot and mouth disease, they may recover, Mm -hmm. the dairy cattle themselves 
never regain full milk production, mm. sometimes only 80%, sometimes even less. Yep. They can also suffer from issues like chronic lameness or infertility. Mm-hmm. So it does, and in a developing country uh, like Nepal, the production losses from this disease are, mm. are actually quite significant. Mm. Um, unfortunately for them to try and eradicate it isn't very feasible. They can only try and control... Right, um, management and... Yeah, so they are stable at the moment with the situation with the disease? I think so. Yeah. I mean, they have outbreaks from time to time. Yeah. And they tend to just dismanage yeah. it. Uh, it would be great if they could eradicate it, and yeah. I think they are looking to try and do that in the future, but yeah. the nature of the country and the yeah. resources it would take means it would be a staged approach. Yeah. And foot and mouth disease can be in any clothed animals we think of it in cattle but it could be in goats and sheep and that's right yeah. any cloven so, hoofed animal so in nepal is it any of those animals or is it mainly in the cattle uh the cattle are the most susceptible yeah uh goats and sheep although they can catch the disease they don't usually show as uh severe clinical symptoms mm, yeah as cattle do less so it's, it's less of an issue for yeah. them they tend to if they do get the disease they tend to just recover and yep. sometimes you might not even notice they've had the infection. Yeah. But the problem with that is if there's sheep and goats near uninfected cattle and these uh, animals are actually affected with foot and mouth disease and they go near the cattle, then mm. the cattle become sick. Yeah. So yep. although it only causes a big issue in the cattle, you still need to control it in sheep and goats in order to try and control the disease. Mm. Yep. Uh, and actually, that's one of the main uh, ways that foot-of-mouth disease continues to break out in Nepal because mm. people will bring infected goats and sheep across from other countries. Right, yeah. Because these animals aren't showing severe signs and might not even be sick at all, yeah. they don't realise they bring them into Nepal near naive animals, animals that mm. have been exposed to a new strain of virus and yeah. they become sick. Well, it's such a holistic job you have it's all about you know livestock production production probably economics as well but also welfare and you know just an all-rounder would you say it's quite a lot to manage it is (laughs) yes but what's great about it is it's very varied yeah uh, and I find it really interesting yeah I find it great that I could use my veterinary degree in a different way so it shows you that there are career pathways outside Mm -hmm. of routine clinical practice because you're a scientist you've been hands-on and you can take those skills into different areas yes yeah yeah. and um you know sometimes i am training vets on incident management and recognizing clinical signs so it's helpful to have came from a veterinary background yeah yeah for um, sure and but also keep developing my skills in different ways and so there must be a whole range of animals and diseases that Australia tries to keep under wraps, you know, foot and mouth disease, um, with cattle in particular being one. But I know that you've done like some fisheries, you've done, I mean, what are some of the other animals and diseases that Australia has to be aware of? Oh, uh, there, there's, there's lots. Um, <laughs> but um, an example of something I've worked on yeah. uh, was looking at disease in abalone. Right, so, um, which is, it's a mollusk or it's, it's like It's a, a mollusk, yeah. yeah, or a sea snail, I suppose. Right, okay. A, a single-shelled mollusk is yeah. what it's they those define be- as. It's beautiful black and white shell. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and the iridescence, yes. I think it's called, iridescence. Yeah. 
so we were using sometimes for my nature of work with training yeah we'll look we'll take a disease and we'll just use it as an example as a scenario mm-hmm. for people to look at what they need to do in a response mm-hmm. so we did an example in tasmania where we used uh, a disease of abalone breaking out as the example so just a hypothetical example. okay yeah and that was abalone viral gangliomuritis. So that's um, considered to be an emergency disease of abalone. Right, yeah. And it has broken out in Australia before. And also and it's more in the fisheries, the on-land yes. fisheries. So not yes. quite in the wild? or Well, it, it most likely does occur yep. in the wild and causes outbreaks from time to time. Yep. Possibly the wild abalone are more resistant to the virus because yeah. it might be endemic there. Yeah, and also it's harder to know if there is a big outbreak because you just don't tend to see yeah. the evidence. Yeah. Uh, but if it's introduced into farmed abalone, yeah. it can cause a big problem because they're kept more intensively than they are in the wild, and they're already under stress more, and animals under stress are more likely mm-hmm. to exhibit disease where otherwise they may not, and yeah. it's more noticeable because you have a lot altogether. Yeah. So, um, yes, I, I never expected to learn as much about abalone yeah. diseases as I have. Uh, and that was quite hands-on, wasn't it? Practical, you get to see the farms in action. Yeah, we went to a property uh, and we took our trained people there to, yeah. to have a look. So, so because we, we didn't have much experience with the abalone industry, but these are people that would be involved in a response potentially. Right. So we looked at the production system to understand how it works and to understand how disease might enter yep. and how you would contain the disease right. on the farm if it occurred. So for pretty much every disease, there's like an action plan, is there? Yes. Like there's kind of like, this is how the disease is spread, this is the incubation period, this is how farms run their business around this production animal or creature mm-hmm. so you're just ready to go that that's right i mean it's nice um, to know there's people like you in our back pocket if anything we're gonna <laughs> break out yeah yeah like australia <laughs> is very proactive is it? in um, yeah. writing response plans and doing a lot of work in what we mm. call peacetime yeah to write these plans and to test them regularly and to try and yes. uh, keep them as up to date as possible as possible so and that's hopefully so yeah if something does happen we're better prepared and better able to respond to it effectively. I guess my little taste of this potential area, we all did, what's it called, public health um, at uni? Um, Yeah, we did stats and things. But actually, when I was at Adelaide Zoo for a one-month internship my final year, I wrote about um, the potential outbreak of Hendra virus Mm. with the flying foxes roosting in the fig trees above the tapir's enclosure. Yes. Tapir being this exotic clove hooved animal and mm. the lysivirus, I think it is. Mm. Don't quote me on all this. But I kind of had to figure out the, the potential weaknesses mm. of a disease spreading. And it was very interesting because um, mm. you kind of have to learn about each animal's involvement, the human mm. interaction with it. And really very fascinating. So your day in, day out must be varied. Right now you're doing some epidemiology stuff, is that right? Like stats? Yeah, so that was uh, <laughs> more to upskill myself. Um, but we've recently run a an exercise, a training exercise, where response personnel from all over Australia come together and they work through some scenarios. Mm-hmm. So they looked at a red imported fire ant scenario and Ooh. also a varroa mite incursion in bees. 
So sometimes um, (laughs) we look at things broader than just animal diseases. We look at things that affect plants or the environment. Yeah, yeah. And how big is this team? Uh, Some other agencies are involved as well. Some other government agencies and other not-for-profit agencies. It's almost like an insurance policy too, like for a livestock industry to say, um, you know, we know what to do if anything were to outbreak. Yes, so um, government and industry work together closely mm, on these arrangements and plans. And yeah. uh, they cover things about who will help pay for the costs in a response. So yeah. it means that there's a lot of collaboration and teamwork in the development and testing mm. of these arrangements and plans. So yeah. uh, everyone is involved. Yeah. And will you be told, hey, we're going from abalone in Tasmania to now these fire ants, you know, are you kind of you know, there's a new project, you kind of... Yes, that's right. There's a Rolodex of (laughs) keep them all fresh. We're lucky that we get to work on a number of disease scenarios uh, to use as training examples for my work specifically. But other areas of the company will do other things like actually update the technical plans and do literature reviews to make sure they've got the most up-to-date information. And you must have to be good at learning fast and effectively because then you are training others like you know to to teach people you've got to really know it you must be given curly questions and we do we do sometimes luckily there's a lot of very experienced people in the company to give support to me yeah Uh, but often people will come up with questions that have never been thought of before or there isn't an answer for and sometimes that means that further work is done in that area to help support that yeah, yeah. No, it's a fascinating area of work and it sounds like you're enjoying it. Yeah, yeah? I am. I am yeah. very lucky uh, yeah. that I enjoy what I do and that to I have found this uh, fairly unique area. Yeah, and it's nice to know that Australia is very proactive and good about this. It would be awful to have an outbreak because that could affect everybody pretty mm, much mm. you know livestock people wildlife the environment you know that's right it, every area of society would be affected yeah it'd be in broader break yes it would be before my wrap-up question i just had a random question which is you know what is what has been the worst sort of outbreak that australia has experienced or maybe not the worst but you know mm. in recent history you're saying 1800s was foot and mouth mm. but anything more recently or have we been that good at preventing problems from um, a disease an exotic disease perspective uh, or from an emergency situation the um, largest outbreaks have probably been avian influenza Mm. outbreaks in chickens yeah Uh, and they've been particularly a problem because the particular strain of avian influenza also affects humans so Mm. that's more even more of a public health concern yes um at, at the moment, there's um, also an outbreak of salmonella enteritis in mm. chickens. Uh, Currently. So, that, so that's a, a public health concern yeah. as well. Yeah. But we've been lucky that we haven't had anything as large yeah. scale as the UK. I guess what's nice is that you're able to focus on preventative stuff versus always crisis mode. Yes. Um, things are in place for that to be resolved the salmonella enteritis? Yes, yes. Um, the, yeah. the affected state is currently trying to resolve the situation and working yeah. with the Department of Health as well. Yeah, and, got, and I guess you guys are so effective at what you do. You, you had a plan for if this were to happen, and now it's being implemented. Um, meanwhile, you're still learning about how to be prepared for other things to happen. That's right. There's always work going on uh, ah. about uh, trying to increase our preparedness yeah. and uh, also responding to 
new threats as they emerge globally. So there's always a lot of work in this area happening yeah. across the country. So you might send out info to these chicken farms to say, look, this is the quarantine you need to do. Um, that kind of thing? Do you give Not it? my agency, um, yeah. but the affected state agency would do uh, it. Would look after that. Wow, yeah, it's such a big framework, isn't it? It is. There's, <laughs> there's um, action at every level of government yeah. um, and also industry as well. So yeah. Uh, yeah. there's a role for everyone and, yeah. uh, to cover everything. Oh, well, I'm just so glad that someone like you was on it because, um, <laughs> you know, very methodical. I remember working with you. You, you know, you don't, you're a good thinker think from different angles and um, yeah I think you're excelling in this job so thank you for thank sharing you. your expertise on it with us and I'll wrap up with asking you how do you stay inspired oh, it's just a very broad question well I think definitely meeting uh, producers yep. and coming home to the farm because that's really what we're trying to protect we're trying to protect um, Australian livestock, Australian industries, an Australian way of life mm. in regards to farming. So that probably keeps it very real when you come home to your mum and dad and you see, you know, that they are in a happy, safe place for it that. It does, yes. Yeah. That's definitely what keeps me inspired for my job. Oh, well, thank you so much, Claire, for being here. And um, let's go out to the farm now. Thanks, Chloe. <laughs> Thanks, Claire. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed learning what interesting non-clinical veterinary work Claire has been up to. It certainly opened my mind. And if you like the show, I'll be most grateful if you could tell a friend, subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. It all helps. Or follow me on Instagram at VetChloe. Next episode, I will have a recent veterinary nurse friend I made in Tasmania on the show, Lisa Braley, who I met whilst working for the veterinary emergency clinic AVEC. Lisa and I connected because we have been living somewhat similar lifestyles of work and play. For the last seven years, Lisa has been working as a veterinary nurse, but in between flying overseas to do many different animal volunteer projects all around the world. As you can imagine, I wanted to pick her brain, but the time at work was busy, 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 and did not afford this, and she then flew off to South Africa for her next adventure, which is where she will be speaking to us from. If you've ever wanted to go overseas and volunteer with animals, Lisa is the one to talk to for advice and inspiration. Be sure not to miss out next week. Till then, stay kind and I'll see you at the next stop.